0: You're the kind of person who makes a difference at work. So why not work on something that makes a difference? At Zoox, we're looking for collaborative, inquisitive people who can help us achieve our mission. Safer, cleaner, more enjoyable mobility for everyone. Come build the future at Zoox. Find out more at zoox.com
1: slash careers. When you set up a savings goal with U.S. Bank, it grows with you. There's no limit to what you can crochet. I, I mean, can do. Doesn't have to be crocheting, but it totally could be. Like the headphones you're listening to this ad with, you could totally crochet those. There's no telling where your savings goal will take you. Maybe you'll save enough for yarn to crochet your house or the whole town. Oh, right. Doesn't have to be crochet related.
0: Set up savings goals on the U.S. Bank mobile app, even for the wildest of dreams. U.S. Bank. will get there together. Equal Housing Lender Member FDIC.
2: 321. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, I have a very special guest, someone who's really a legend. His name is Jerry Armstrong. Jerry with the G, G E R R Y, And he was an early member of Scientology, but not just an ordinary member. He was really within the inner circle of L. Ron Hubbard's group. And he's going to tell really it's kind of another saga of some of these other stories that I've covered recently, but this saga of Jerry Armstrong and how he got into Scientology and what happened while he was in and then why he left. I came across him in my research of Children of the Beast. He was in a documentary called Secret Lives, and uh, I watched that with great interest. He mentioned Alistair Crowley's dictum, Do It Thou Wilt Shall Be the Whole of the Law. So that really made me sit up in my chair when I was watching that, but it's really an honor for me to have Jerry Armstrong with me tonight. Jerry, are you there?
3: Yeah, and awesome. thanks. Awesome. Thanks well, for that intro.
2: Thank you. Well, thank you for agreeing to the interview. It's really uh, a pleasure for me, as somebody who's kind of followed Scientology and L. Ron Hubbard, to have somebody who knew him firsthand. So for people who don't know your name, can you talk a little bit about yourself and how you made those first steps into this, this group called Scientology?
3: Sure. I first heard of Scientology in early 1969, so that's 50 years ago this year, and then I uh, was sort of introduced to it by a friend who had been to Scientology in Vancouver and Toronto and returned to where I was living then in Chilliwack, British Columbia. Canada. And he told amazing stories about Scientology and OT Powers and Clear and L. Ron Hubbard and the Sea Org and, you know, relatively fantastic things. And he had a bunch of Scientology books, uh, which I read a number of them at that time. And then I entered the first Scientology uh, office, I guess, in Vancouver and Vancouver, British that, Columbia. That was
2: 1969, that's, roughly
3: 1969? Right. About September 1969 is when I first entered uh, Scientology door, so that's 50 years ago now.
2: Do you think that was, there was an advertisement of these kind of spiritual powers from Scientology? Would you agree to that that, that was something that intrigued you?
3: Uh, absolutely. The promises of Scientology were presented in a scientific con- context, and uh, Hubbard used scientific terms. And I understood what the promises were. I understood, you know, something of the procedure to get there. And I understood the great ethics that would be required to accomplish, Uh, attaining these great goals, clear, and become an operating thetan, you know, so it was couched in terms like uh, an OT is someone uh, with the, who is at cause over matter, energy, space, and time. So I understood what that that meant, and that is why I got in uh, along with the desire or the need uh, to be part of this uh, group which claimed, in their scientific terms, to be saving mankind. Like, man had no hope with religion, no hope with uh, medicine, no hope with psychiatry, no hope with meditation or anything like that. The hope was solely Scientology. And so I seriously, I devoted myself, I joined the beginning of 1971. I joined the Sea Organization, and, which is the core group of Scientologists that really now run the organization, and signed my Sea Org contract, which was for a billion years. And I stayed in the Sea Organization for the next 12 and a half years until I left in 1981. And very soon after joining, which was in Los Angeles in California, I was flown to the Apollo. That was considered the flagship of the Sea Organization. L. Ron Hubbard and his family were on board and Scientology was managed from the Apollo uh, for until they got rid of the ship, which is, I guess, in 1975. But ni- from beginning in 1974, or 1971, I was on board uh, for the next four years, and we were at that time in Morocco, and then Portugal and Spain, and then we came across uh, in... Uh, to the Caribbean, and we were there from 74 into 75, and then came ashore in Florida. While on the ship, I began as a storesman, then I became the boats and transport in charge, and then I became um, the driver. We had a little vehicle, a little Fiat 500cc car that we offloaded in the ship's ports, and I drove people around, including Hubbard's family. Uh, we offloaded his cars—he had a number of cars also on board—we offloaded them in Tangier in Morocco, and I was responsible for some of the things which were needed for his vehicles. And then I became uh, the ship's representative, our legal officer on board. And dealt with immigration and customs, and uh, the police and the harbor master and tugs and chandlers and that sort of thing. And uh, then I became the port captain briefly. Uh, he was responsible for port relations and the port captain the port captain's office, we had uh, public relations, legal, and intelligence. Those were the three sections which in, with the port captain's office. And then I became, after the port captain, I became the intelligence officer on board, and that was at the time we were in the Caribbean.
2: What did, what did the intelligence aspects of that position entail? What did, what did you have to do?
3: Well, uh, so we had internal and external intelligence, and because we were in a on a ship, which was moving every week or ten days or whatever between ports, there was never any uh, kind of an opportunity, really, to build any kind of an intelligence network. But nevertheless, I did try to develop intelligence contacts outside the ship, and I was responsible for security inside the ship. And a lot of it had to do with uh, people going crazy, people wanting to leave, people doing things which were insecure.
2: Gotcha.
3: Uh, what, what do you think about of... that? Throughout the time that I was on board the ship, we pretended to not be Scientology. Oh, interesting. Uh, but we were Operation and Transport Corporation Limited, a Panamanian business management company. But Scientology, in its core, in its operation and philosophy, is an intelligence organization. That is, the highest emphasis in Scientology is on intelligence and and security. And of course, those those are both linked. So it's both it's
2: both internal and external. So not only are you keeping materials on people in Scientology, but you're also looking out for potential enemies, IRS, other things. Is that correct?
3: That that's that is correct. Uh, at the time when I was on board the Apollo, uh, the Guardian's office, which was headquartered in England was responsible for intelligence and legal and public relations and finance uh, for the whole uh, Scientology organization internationally. The head of the Guardian's office was Elron Hubbard's wife, Mary Sue Hubbard. And in the Guardian's office, uh, you probably know, that 11 of its personnel uh, were charged by the U.S. federal government and convicted of various crimes, but essentially espionage against the federal government. And that included Mary Sue Hubbard. And the FBI raided the intelligence bureaus of Scientology in 1977 in Washington, D.C. and Los Angeles. There's an intelligence mentality inside Scientology, which, which is completely prevalent and dominates the organization. You can see there were about 400 or more of us on board the ship, mm-hmm. 400 Scientologists. And yet we were all able to maintain the ruse or the scam that we were a, a Panamanian business management corporation. Wow. And the the same is true. They're they're very dedicated to people, inside, not finding out their strengths or intentions, or operations or secrets.
2: So there's not only just an intelligence, but almost like a counterintelligence sensibility, where you're not supposed to let outsiders understand the. Internal mechanics, would you agree with that
3: absolutely,
2: and then um was was there also a reason why Hubbard wanted to move port from port? was he trying to avoid taxes or the IRS at that time uh,
3: yeah that that really was the practice before I came on board and there were instances where, for one reason or another, we were delayed in ports, or we stayed uh, for a number of months. For example, we went into dry dock in in Lisbon, and then wet dock in Lisbon, and we were there for a number of months. So some sometimes uh, circumstances necessitated our either leaving more quickly than planned or uh, staying longer than planned but uh yes his idea was you can uh, pick up and leave at any moment there's a the ship itself is is quite secure from anybody getting on board there's a single gangway which is always manned by by someone and we always uh ran various drills which included repelling boarders that is people trying to board the ship wow. so there was physical security and then there was a legal legal security because technically we are a foreign country even though we are docked inside a, a port so someone coming and going uh like flying from lisbon to to the U.S. would have to have their passport stamped into Portugal and then out of Portugal when they flew to the U.S. Uh, everyone had to uh, submit their, their passport as soon as they came on board. I see. And so it became very difficult for anyone to leave because we were always in foreign countries. So that's another factor in the security matter.
2: Do you do you feel that of those 400 people on board that there was a significant number who wanted to leave at any given time?
3: There were probably a number who who thought about it, the number who actually wanted and and put it into planning was really quite small, all things considered, but it was also quite constant. So there were many people during the time when I was on board who either wanted to leave and then were subjected to the metered interrogations um, that everyone had to go through if they wanted to leave. People were stripped of their Scientology belongings and they were isolated, and they were interrogated, and otherwise neutralized. It was standard practice to have them to have them sign confessions of their crimes uh, before they were allowed to leave. When and you then, when you say the,
2: metered interrogation, what does that metered interrogation mean?
3: Well, Scientology Scientologists use the Electropsychometer, the E-meter, for interrogations or security checks. These can be, uh, you know, very aggressive, very shocking, very accusative, or they can simply be a matter of asking a person, you know, private questions about their life or their thoughts, and. Uh, all Scientologists are subjected to these security checks or interrogations. All that information is written down. Nowadays, it it is recorded in various ways, uh, audio or video. And that information is maintained and it can be used against the person as the Senior Scientologists wish.
2: I see. So it was
3: e- a corrupt practice.
2: So even at that time in the seventies, there was like a dossier on every member that where there would be a compilation of successes and wrongdoings that was kept on each person. Is that correct?
3: Yes, there were there were multiple. So there was what's called an ethics file, and into that would go. Uh, persons as you say wrongdoings and that sort of thing and and then there are the person's uh, auditing files or pre-clear folders and those that's the record which is made of all of their uh, therapy or your auditing is what what it's called right. so everything is recorded and that information is well. There, There is a, a personnel file and, and then there was an intelligence file. So in addition to the ethics file, there's an intelligence file. At one time that was maintained by the guardian's office and it went into what was called a B1 file, B1 intelligence. And, And now I suppose the same practice would exist for... Office of Special Affairs, which is what the Guardian's Office was renamed in the early 1980s. I see. And on the
2: ship, he, uh, Hubbard kind of kept a kind of like seafaring order. He was known as the Commodore, and there was a lot of kind of admiralty trappings throughout Scientology and including on the ship. Is that true?
3: Oh, absolutely. Everyone was either, had either a rank or a rating. So when you first join the Sea Org, your rating is swamper, and then you you become a petty officer, and when you become an officer, you can be a midshipman, and then a officer, and an ensign, and then a lieutenant, and then a commander, and then a captain. So there were, Mary Sue Hubbard was a, a captain, Hubbard was the commodore. There were various lieutenants. I made it all the way up to ensign, gotcha. so I was a sea org officer. So when and you- they also have, they wear naval uniforms and uh, use naval etiquette and and naval naval terms, na- naval time.
2: Naval time. Everything's naval. Interesting. And that still goes for even on land-based Scientology organizations. It's still this kind of Admiralty naval sensibility because they still, I mean, I'm here in LA, so I still see the people dressed up in different rankings and different types of clothes. It seems like. Right. And, and then how, so when you were on the Apollo, how did you become or rise to becoming Hubbard's personal secretary?
3: Uh, I was never his personal secretary. Okay, I, so that's right. Okay, I, I did have... I did rise to the point where uh, I had possession of his personal archive of personal papers and worked with, as the researcher, for a biographer. So, and... Uh, on board, th- this was sometime later. I'll give you a bit of a chronology. Okay, great. Uh, um, I was, uh, Hubbard was on board during most of those years, and I would occasionally see him and occasionally have reasons to communicate with him. And and then when we came ashore, I was with him in uh First Daytona Beach and then Dunedin. And in Dunedin I was in the L. Ron Hubbard's External Communications Bureau and my office was adjacent to his office. So we saw each other like every day for that period of time. And and then I was assigned it's a long story, but I was assigned by him Uh, to the RPF, the Rehabilitation Project Force, which is the Sea Org's uh, penal penal colonies or prisons. Uh, It's a a re-education punishment and re-education camp that the organization maintains in various places. Hubbard uh, created this monstrosity, the RPF, Uh, on board the ship in 1974 and then he assigned me to it, me and my then wife Terry, in uh, the the beginning of July 1976, and this was in Clearwater, and I stayed in the RPF for the next 17 months. I got out of there and after a number of, doing a number of things, uh, ended up in uh, La Quinta, California, where Hubbard uh, had set up a base, and that's where we were going to shoot movies. So I shot movies with him uh, for the next, I guess, eight or nine months. I I had various positions, and then uh, he got in a snit and assign me to the RPF again, along with a number of other other people.
2: And can you ex- can sorry to interrupt, but can you explain in more detail what the RPF's duties were and what you had to do and what you endured and other people had to endure uh, as part of that program, please? Sure.
3: So the the RPF is a, a group of people, group of Org members. That are isolated, they are uh, they have to wear a specific specific uh, outfits on on board the ship. it was black boiler suits. And in clear water, uh, after a while it became blue boiler suits. And so there have been ver- various uniforms that, isolate them from the rest of the crew. You could not speak to a crew member outside the RPF unless spoken to. You could have no newspapers, no radio, no television, really no contact with the outside world unless it was specifically approved of. You you ate after the rest of the crew ate whatever was left. As it turned out, it grew to about, I don't know, uh, let's say 100 people in the, the Clearwater RPF. So it became really stupid to have them eat the scraps from the other, the, the regular crew. So consequently, the RPF became so big that they ate, in a sense, the same as the rest of the crew, but after the rest of the crew ha- had eaten. They could have, um, at one time, you were allowed one night out a week with a spouse. and I, By one night a week, I mean you were allowed to have a, a room or some kind of a sleeping arrangement nearby. You did not leave the base. Um, and didn't you had, have to like uh, run,
2: uh, run from task to task too? So there were other kind of, kind of demeaning activities running from task to task. And, and also like, weren't there like some kind of repetitive jobs that you had to do send out my mailers or something like that? I can't remember. Uh,
3: well, yes, we had, we had, uh, the most, you know, basic basic jobs like uh, cleaning, the, cleaning the the bathrooms, you know, taking care of the garbage. That was a, a usual routine. So we got the cleaning, got some construction work because, you know, there were 100, 100 people who had to put them to work. So we were involved in construction, in painting, all kinds of activities where they needed a workforce and we we received one quarter wages. So the standard wages at that time were $17.20 a week. So when we were assigned to the RPF, it was-
0: You're the kind of person who makes a difference at work. So why not work on something that makes a difference? At Zooks, we're looking for collaborative, inquisitive people who can help us achieve our mission, Safer, cleaner, more enjoyable mobility for everyone. Come build the future at Zoox. Find out more at zoox.com slash careers. When your dad started building a man cave in your bedroom, you knew it was time to start building something for yourself. Let's job it up. At Career Builder, we're ready to help at every stage of your search. Build a resume, get industry tips and advice, and apply to multiple jobs in just one click. Start your search at CareerBuilder.com.
3: Reduced to $4.30 a week. You had to, as you mentioned, you had to run everywhere and uh, you you had to, with that $4.30, somehow buy your own toiletries and whatever else you need, oh, And
2: that was unknown to the outside world, too. It was kind of a secret within Scientology. Isn't that correct?
3: That's correct. In fact, in, in Clearwater, the Guardian's office would receive word that there was going to be an inspection. And so we dismantled the space in the the building where the RPF was operating, and turned it into a storage room. But it was where we slept, where where we where we worked, and we also there were so many of us after a while that we slept in the in the garage.
2: Wow! And what uh, what again? What what? For you particularly, what infraction or whatever you did, what necessitated you getting thrown into the RPF?
3: Well, the first time, this was for 17 months, I got in an argument with Mary Sue Hubbard's secretary. Uh, She was being very witchy, I thought, and so I stood up to her. And this created, in Hubbard's mind, a security flap. And consequently, I was taken uh, from where we were at that point. It was in a staging area in Culver City before the base was set up in La Quinta. And I was taken out of there and then locked up on the sixth floor of the Fifield Manor building. That's the building in Los Angeles that is now Celebrity Center. Right. At that so time, gotcha. it had the guardian's office in it, and I was locked up there, and then I was sent along with my wife, uh, flown back to uh, Florida and to the RPF. And so that was for 17 months. And then the second one was because uh, Hubbard got the idea that I was joking about his movie making. I had done a voiceover in this little demonstration film we were doing and did it as a, he called it a Barnum and Bailey circus announcer, you know, ladies and gentlemen. So he thought
2: I was joking and sent me to the RPF. Wow, just for that. And then with that second time, how long were you in for that again? Uh, About eight months. Eight months, it's incredible. And when was the, there was a famous, something that hit the public was the McPherson, she was in the RPF. Was that around your time or was that later?
3: Uh, I don't know that, that Lisa McPherson was in the RPF
2: specifically.
3: She, she was, uh, locked up, denied medical help, held down, force fed, drugged, and then ultimately killed. And that was in the same place that we were at the Fort
2: Harrison in Clearwater. Clearwater, right, which is was I think at one point, wasn't it, at the World Headquarters of Scientology? Is that true? Uh yes. Gotcha. Yeah.
3: The the headquarters really is wherever Hubbard was and wherever David Miscavige operates from. All right, so where so, but but yes, uh, before n- now the international base is in Clearwater or, or in uh, Gilman Hot Springs in California, and then there are other other offices in in Los Angeles, and those are the addresses which are really considered the the headquarters. I see. And then so
2: you saw Hobart firsthand on the ship. Do you have any recollections? I mean, he had a motorcycle accident and he uh, supposedly Scientology could, I think his initial story was that it cured him of being in a wheelchair too, right? So here's a guy who was injured in one of these motorcycle accidents when he was in Spain or something like that with kind of long-term disability. But can you talk about his kind of personal behavior and, and what you thought of him at that time and how that
3: changed? Boy. Uh, his motorcycle accident that I knew of was in uh, Tenerife, which is a, a Spanish island in the Atlantic. And uh, what exactly happened, I don't know. I understood uh, the scuttlebutt was that he hit a gravel patch and uh, came off his his bike. Um, While he was recuperating, he apparently refused to go to a doctor, and he had either a a bruised or broken shoulder, my guess is a bruise, and he uh, sat in his chair for a period of time, the messengers as I understood it, were were not able to make him comfortable in any way. And he ranted, and he was very ticked off at everything, it seemed. And that's when he began the RPF. The RPF oh, okay. was to readout those people around him who he thought were list one rock slammers or evil beings or um, people who were counterintention to what his plans were uh
2: and that was i mean he passed he died and well supposedly died he gave up his body in nineteen eighty six so he was definitely um i mean i think that you in one of the writings he' was overweight and you know smoke smoking did he smoke two packs of unfiltered cools a day is that correct at
3: least oh, wow. he he really he chain-smoked, and they were unfiltered cools. And the story of the, the messengers holding his ashtray for him or following around to catch his ashes, those things are true. True, wow. And what were the messengers? Those were uh, on the ship is where they began. They were young girls. Uh, for the most part. I I believe there was the odd young guy who came along and joined them. But it was principally young girls, teenage girls. And they followed him around. They got him dressed in the morning. They ran his messages for him all over the ship. And hence they became known as the messengers. They had a great deal of power inside the organization, and ultimately his messengers uh, took over control of the organization from the Guardian's office. And they got rid of Mary Sue Hubbard and her hierarchy and installed their own hierarchy uh, to run Scientology.
2: Fascinating.
3: And while you're married to... Hubbard's Hubbard's uh, top messenger at the time, uh, Terry Gillum.
2: And that, that wedding took place, and I saw the pictures of it, on Tony Ortega's excellent site. who's done a lot of Scientology uh, interviews and books. I so think he put out a book recently, but there was a picture of you right there with L. Ron Hubbard sitting at the table, and I think those were the messengers right over Hubbard's shoulder. Is that right?
3: Yes, yes. That, those were, they're, they're, I suppose they were like, 10 or 15 at, at various times, and they worked in shifts. They they were outside his door all night as he slept. Uh, they took care of his his needs. They went with him on photo shoots. They followed him around all over the ship if he walked, and they ran
2: messages. Incredible. And then, like, what were your personal observances of Hubbard when you were in his presence at that time?
3: Um, my my first view of him was uh, looking in from, I think it's called the prom, prom deck, promenade deck, uh, into his research room window, and he was sitting at his desk, and I noticed how in incredibly huge his forearms were i think he had a short sleeve shirt on or at some point i observed that he was a physically big man he was fatter than i expected him to be and he was fatter than you you would want your superhuman ot guru leader to be nevertheless he was a very big man. He had a very big, deep voice. Uh, I, there was a couple of times when I had uh, exchanges with him and was very close to him and was discussing a particular point with him. I got the idea that he was like he would become sort of beady-eyed as if he was, you know, looking into into my mind in some way. And in, in my neophyte, you know, state of mind, I, it was a bit unnerving, but I kind of had to maintain my cool. In the same way that I would act around, like, if I was in the Navy and had to talk to the admiral, it would be with you know tremendous respect but i would not you know exhibit overall so you. even though i was overawed i didn't exhibit it and and was able to you know hang with him and and discuss things intelligently with him
2: and and on the ship was scientology being practiced were people doing auditing and learning from his teachings and did he kind of carry on in a kind of guru position?
3: Oh, absolutely. No, it was uh, Scientology from everyone on board was involved in some way, even though I had my work, which uh, took me off the ship virtually every day. And I had, my work was with people outside, uh, the Chandler and the tugboat people and the harbor master and police and, and uh, customs and immigration and that sort of thing. It really was, Scientology was on my mind throughout all of that. And I had to study Scientology while on board, study Hubbard's teachings and listen to his tapes and be fully indoctrinated in Scientology submit to being audited and, and generally live the life of a Scientologist while pretending as far as the world was concerned that this was a business management company
2: incredible that's incredible and then so, what you started at some point uh you know you left Scientology after 12 years or so what, when did it start to turn for you, and, and how did that happen?
3: Um, after getting out of the RPF my, my second time, and we were at that time at Gilman Hot Springs, and uh, there was a raid threat at the beginning of nineteen eighty. And there had been raid threats at various times in the past, and we had also at those times destroyed different, destroyed evidence of who we were, destroyed evidence of, of different kinds. Interesting. On, on this occasion, the criteria for the destruction of evidence were anything which showed that. Hubbard intended to live at Gilman Hot Springs, that he had control of organization finances, and that he had control of the organization. Now, all of those things were true. He had an intention to live at Gilman Hot Springs. He ran Scientology finances, and he ran Scientology. But we, every post position, a job on at Gilman at that time, had to gather up any documents that they had which related to those those three matters. And I was at that time in uh, Hubbard's household unit it, at uh, Gilman Hot Springs. So I knew of his intention to live there. I had a number of communications with him, dispatches and so on, about his plans to, to live there and uh, his authorization of monies. So there were certain things that, that were to be destroyed and the organization uh, rented a monstrous uh, document shredder and a couple of ton truck and destroyed hundreds or thousands of pounds of paper. In the course of this, one of my juniors uh, who had the post of the L. Ron Hubbard gear in charge, that is his personal effects, came to me with a box of old, beat-up box with a bunch of old papers and said, how about these? And I took a look at them and realized that they were outside the the three criteria and uh, that, that they had tremendous historical value. And so I said, no, we won't destroy those. I secured uh, those papers and went with her and found where she got it and, and then made a complete search of all of this stuff and found 21 boxes of similar materials uh, which... Went all the way back to his his grandfather correspondence with his, with his parents, correspondence with his family, all kinds of his Boy Scout records, all kinds of personal documents which he had saved over his whole life. Uh, so I took those and uh, took them to the head of the the L. Ron Hubbard. Public Relations Bureau, and then I petitioned Hubbard, based on these discoveries, to do the uh, research for his biography and to assemble this material into an archive and into a museum, and suggested at the same time that now a biography could be done, and and, uh, I think I mentioned Omar Garrison, but in any case, through time, Umar Garrison, who had done some other books for Scientology, um, was contracted to write the Hubbard biography, and I was assigned at that time per contract as his researcher. So I had possession of Hubbard's archive uh, from the beginning of 1980 through when I left in at the, in December of 1981, so almost two years' possession. I had other tasks as well, but I was able to read a lot of this material, and I traveled around and interviewed uh, living relatives. I traveled to England and got documents there, and I traveled to uh, Florida and brought back documents, and also purchased collections of Hubbard materials that different people had. I think uh, A.E. Van uh, we purchased a collection from him, Helen O'Brien purchased documents from her, and I I think there were others as well. Um, But in the course of studying Hubbard's materials and working with Omar Garrison and being somewhat free to travel around and talk to Garrison and I came to the conclusion that Hubbard had lied about very important things, including his truth. He just was an incredible gargantuan liar and that became apparent to uh, Omar Garrison. and it became at that point when when Garrison as well began to see that what he had previously been fed about Scientology and Hubbard in earlier books that he had done for Scientology, that those that what he had been told was garbage and a pack of lies, then we began to speak somewhat freely about the lies that we were, discovering between us.
2: Do you remember any any of the more glaring lies that uh, rose out of what became known as the Hubbard Archive?
3: Oh, sure. I had, uh, for example, um, he, his naval records, and where I had been programmed with this idea that he had received either 27 or 29 uh, medals uh, as a result of his naval service and that he had been crippled and blinded in the war. And then to discover, because I had possession of his own uh, naval records, which he had maintained, and also had possession of uh, FOIA Uh, documents which the Navy had, um, uh, provided to him, Mm -hmm. um, via, via the guardian's office. So the guardian's office made a a submission to the Navy for Hubbard's records on behalf of Hubbard. And so I had both of those, um, sets of naval records. And, he net. He was never crippled, never blinded. His claim of uh, sinking two Japanese submarines was a lie. He in fact had uh, lost command of the two ships that that he did have command of, and he. Uh, The reports, various reports that he received throughout the war uh, indicate, you know, kind of like insubordination and not good officer material. Uh, He was sent back ingloriously from Australia right at the beginning of the war. was, it, was so, it in
2: those records where he supposedly bombed some deserted island off of the coast of Mexico, Is that, does that sound right?
3: Right, he, so was he was in command at that time of a, of a ship, a coastal patrol vessel, the PC-815 and he took it from San Diego into Mexican waters and shelled a, a Mexican island in the Coronado Islands
2: so you were the one who uncovered at least what parts all those facts, including that one, correct?
3: Well, I think I think that certain people had had known about these things before and written about them. Paulette Cooper had had written a book which was highly critical of Scientology and Hubbard. And so I think to some degree, he had already been debunked. But the difference here was that I had this mass of documents, and I knew L. Ron Hubbard personally, and I I probably had the best sets of documents of anyone, and then ultimately a lot of these documents went into a court case and, and then were brought to the public attention in that way. Gotcha. But Rather than him receiving twenty-seven or twenty-nine medals, and he even claimed two Purple Hearts—that is, two uh, two times of being wounded in action—the fact was he received four standard service medals. And he, I mean, it, it it is, I think, the most glaring case of. Uh, Valor theft, stolen valor, I think I have ever heard of. And and still, the Scientologists are still stealing valor for this guy. They refuse to acknowledge, despite all the evidence to the contrary, that Hubbard lied about his military uh, medals, his history, his wounds etc but, but that was
2: kind of one of his selling points is that Scientology healed him from being in a wheelchair as well, so if that never happened, then you know this it was kind of a dispelling this myth
3: right right it it never it never happened crippled he, right. he was he was never blinded.
2: So, when you had this Hubbard archive, what happened next? Once you had this, this, these twenty-five or thirty boxes of his personal materials.
3: Well, I, I, some of them were unsorted, some of them were out of order, and so I brought some kind of order to it, and I created uh, binders of copies, and these are what principally. I gave to Omar Garrison. Um, so I guess I I think like a couple of hundred thousand pages, although you know from memory it's hard it's hard for me to say. But a massive amount of material that I delivered to Omar Garrison, and I worked with him right to the end. Now toward. Toward the end of my stay inside, I was given the task, or assumed it, of critiquing public statements which had been made by Hubbard or about Hubbard and which I knew to be false. And I, I was very concerned that...
0: We could all use a real vacation right
3: about now. Lucky for
0: us, Princess Cruises has a port right here in SF. Starting at $99 per day, Princess can take you to the beaches of Mexico, the tropics of Hawaii, the glaciers of Alaska, or along the California coast. That's right, just $99 per day. Set sail with California's cruise line. Call 1-800-PRINCESS, visit princess.com, or contact your travel advisor today. Terms and restrictions apply. Promotional pricing ends November 30th, 2021. Ships are Bermudan and British Registry. Before booking, consult the CDC website at www.cdc.gov.
1: Happy holidays don't just happen on their own. You make them happen with a little help from new appliances at the Home Depot. Because warm wishes won't roast that turkey. You'll want a new convection oven for that. An air fryer will help make the season light and delicious. And while you're at it, consider a new LG or Samsung fridge that's big enough to hold all kinds of Christmas cheer. Make the holidays yours with the season's best savings on top appliances at the Home Depot. How doers get more done.
3: If I knew that these things were false, we could not continue to tell these lies, even if Hubbard told them. And so I tried, I wrote some critiques of about the author sections in books and uh, by little sketches of of Hubbard and tried from my position to document what the truth is and what we should be saying and not saying uh, of what had been said in the past. Because of this, that... Came to the attention of the people who were then taking over Scientology, and the person leading that that rush was David Miscavige, and in, he sent.
2: What what around the years was this kind of transference of power starting to take place? Do you recollect? Well, in in one thousand, nine hundred and eighty-one. So right there, so Hubbard was kind of drifting off and writing back to writing science fiction books and. David Miscavige was kind of uh, taking over. Is that correct?
3: Well, Hubbard was writing science fiction books, but Hubbard never lost control at all. So, Interesting. No, Miscavige was was his guy, uh, and Miscavige was the conduit between Hubbard's unit, Pat and Annie Broker, and the organization. So Miscavige was in a a powerful position at that point. And we, at my level in the organization, uh, because of many attempts to serve Hubbard with subpoenas or with lawsuits, uh, we were supposed to never admit that there was any line of communication to Hubbard. Now, I, I received communications from Hubbard during that period. In fact, I was given the, um, the introduction to Battlefield Earth and the, the Battlefield Earth manuscript um, before publication, and I had to do certain things for Hubbard with it. And I had communicated with Hubbard throughout that period. But the sure story, that is the the lie, was that uh, we had no way of communicating to Hubbard. Of course, we did have a way, it was via David Miscavige. Um, So you
2: had the Hubbard archive, you were starting to leave, or you kind of felt like you wanted to leave. What happened next?
3: Right. So Miscavige sent one of his juniors, Norman Starkey, who I'd been on the ship with. He was the captain of the ship during much of the time that I was on board. Uh, uh, Miscavige sent Starkey down to my area um, to essentially to rant at me and to accuse me of saying things about... uh, Saying things which made Elon Hubbard look like a liar. And I said, well, for example, a nuclear physicist, he claims to be a nuclear physicist, the one course that he took in what could be construed as nuclear physics, he flunked. So uh, then this guy, Starkey, he he, gla- he, f- <laughs> he blew up and claimed, well, Hubbard never said that he was a nuclear physicist. And uh, I I went to my bookshelf and showed him in Hubbard's handwriting where he claimed to be a nuclear physicist. And Starkey just stormed out of the room, and within a few days, I was ordered from Los Angeles to the int base at Gilman Hot Springs uh, to be sec checked, about what I had said and what documents I had been giving to Omar Garrison. I see. So I knew at that point that the people on top are not going to change their position regarding Hubbard, the lies are not going to be corrected, and I am in serious trouble, and I can no longer live with this circumstance, and so I made plans. Uh, took my very meager belongings uh, away from the base because I had a car and I was uh, dealing with Omar Garrison all the time so I was able to sneak my belongings off the base and then uh, ultimately at the middle of December, December 12, um, my wife and I... uh, Left the organization, and I never returned.
2: Fascinating. And so, you, when you fled, where did you try to head back home, or what were your next steps after leaving Scientology?
3: Yeah, I I spent the uh, one night with Omar Garrison and his wife, and then my wife and I uh, took uh, one of his vehicles and drove up north uh, from, they lived at that point in Costa Mesa in um, Orange County in California, and we drove up to British Columbia, and then Omar offered me a, a job, which really didn't materialize, but he offered me a job working in his publishing company and being available because I was the guy who knew my way around Scientology, C. or Galron Hubbard, and his history and the documents? So would still be able to help Omar. So my wife and I then returned, and uh, she got a job in a law office, and then shortly after that, I got a job in the same law office, and I worked in uh, as a as a paralegal. Uh, for the next uh, two and a half years until uh, my trial in Los Angeles Superior Court in 1984. Shortly after I left, I picked up surveillance from Scientology PIs, Mm -hmm. and I knew that the Guardian's Office intelligence personnel were rooting around uh, in my family and in my wife's family, Um, they stole some materials, which I legitimately had, including some uh, photographs, and when I went into the organization to demand them back, uh, they said, uh, you know, to hell with you, get a lawyer.
2: Wow, so So that's how it started. Just to interrupt, sorry Jerry, this is actually, we're actually at one hour of recording, so I'm gonna stop the tape And that just means we have. All right, Jerry, if you could just pick it up where you kind of left off leaving Scientology and then all of a sudden this uh, group, security group within Scientology, uh, took some of your property and and what happened then?
3: Um, Um, After I went into the organization and demanded the property back, and I, I must say that I went, I went there with my then wife and with Omar Garrison and his wife. And I did that, you know, they were kind enough to do it, but I went there for security reasons. Um, I believe that if I had not escaped but had asked organization or told the organization that I wanted to leave, that I would for sure have been locked up. And I believe that because of my mindset at the time, and because of my building defiance, that they would have killed me. So security around the Scientologists was paramount after I left. Then they stole the materials. I went in with the Garrison's and my wife, demanded them back. They said, get an attorney. And I made contact with Boston attorney Michael Flynn. Michael Flynn, I already knew from my work, he was like the leading light or the spark plug running at that time. The anti Scientology, uh, the opposition, and the litigation. I see. And I, he flew me to uh, Florida. Uh, he was then conducting the famous um, Clearwater
2: hearings. Um, Can you explain the Clearwater hearings for people who don't
3: know? <clears throat> uh, after Scientology came to Clearwater, I guess in 1975, then uh, there, there was an effort led by Mayor Cazares and, and others, uh, first of all, to expose who it was, because Scientology arrived there under false pretenses, pretending to be um, United Churches of Florida. And uh, they were anything but. It was a Scientology operation. Anyway, the the city at that time tried to mount a legal challenge uh, to Scientology. And as part of it, they conducted the, these hearings in which a number of people who were knowledgeable about Scientology or had been victimized in some way uh, came forward and gave their, their testimony. And the city hired Michael Flynn good Boston attorney uh, to draft um, uh, so, some kind some kind of a, a case uh, to bring against Scientology on behalf of the city. Ultimately, the city prevailed, uh, but in these uh, Flynn was involved in the hearings at the time, that I had this confrontation with Scientology. He flew me out to meet him in Florida. Gotcha. And he he became my attorney at that point. And we corresponded, of course. And and then, because I was uh, picking up, as I say, the threat from the organization, I ultimately... Uh, went to Omar Garrison or the the scientologists published two what are called suppressive person declares on me suppressive person is a scientology concept which is very evil it's indefensible it is inhumane and i was declared a suppressive person and the allegation was made that I was essentially lying about Alron Hubbard. And in order to secure the documents which I know would ultimately would be needed and were needed, I went to Garrison and I asked him uh, for copies or, or documents that I would need, it, need to defend myself. I'd already been told to get an attorney. And I sent those documents, the garrison documents, uh, to Mike Flynn in Boston and uh, his co-counsel, a firm in uh, Woodland Hills in California. And um, not long after that, in August 1982, the organization did sue me. And the documents which I had sent to Garrison or to Flynn and to his California co counsel uh, were uh, submitted to the court and put under seal, where they remained until the trial in 1984. So Scientology alleged essentially that I had stolen the materials, which was not the case because. I was working with the contract that the organization had or Ellen Hubbard had with Omar Garrison. And I was obliged per contract to su- to um, provide Garrison whatever he wanted or whatever we could provide uh, <clears throat> so that the, the theft or the conversion case um didn't go anywhere. The invasion of privacy as a result of me um, going to garrison and sending them uh, to my attorneys likewise. And there was a, I think about a 30-day trial in L.A. Superior Court in 1984, May and June of 1984. And out of that came... the the very famous Breckinridge decision, Judge Breckinridge was the judge on the case, in which uh, I was exonerated. Um, The organization was, the practice of fair game was condemned, and fair game is the Scientologists' aggressive criminal actions against people who are considered threats. Specifically, in, in almost all cases, these are people who simply stand up and tell the truth about L. Ron Hubbard, about Scientology, and about Scientologists. That is the class, the religious class of persons that Scientology calls, in scripture, suppressive persons. The suppressive person doctrine essentially says that anyone who commits high crimes and those include telling the truth testifying going to the media that anyone who commits such a an offense a high crime it is a suppressive person and they have the attributes of a psychopath or a sociopath that it is a a highly damaging concept. It is very close to the Nazi's Jewish doctrine. They, they want suppressive persons, people like myself, to have no rights. They say, Hubbard says, may be tricked, lied to, sued, Stolen from and destroyed. Yeah. And yeah. All from Hubbard. This
2: is all Hubbard's doctrine. Suppressive person, fair game, right?
3: That's right. It's in, it's in Hubbard's scripture. So they have indeed, they have physically assaulted me on six occasions. They've sued me on six occasions. They've driven me into bankruptcy. They have black PR'd me around the world. Black PR or black propaganda is Scientology's policy and practice of destroying people's targets, reputations with lies, perversions, um, covertly and overtly and relentlessly.
2: Right, like they go
3: after family
2: and friends and spread really nasty rumors and things like that, is that correct?
3: That's right. They 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 just go on to <clears throat> destroy a person's reputation, their credibility, their opportunities in life, their relationships, their family, and their life.
2: And they accused you of being an FBI agent too, which is uh which is a whopper as well,
3: right? Right. They they accused me uh, uh, I believe as an FBI agent, but in any case that I had been uh, sent in and that this 12 and a half years of dedication to Hubbard and the organization that I was working for, a foreign intelligence service.
2: Right, and you got, so they reported you to the FBI, there's all, just everything, all kinds of really nasty uh, behavior overall, and uh, you even almost got run off the road, I think it was in Germany, is that correct?
3: Well, there was a, a Scientology operative who um, messed around with us on, on the Autobahn in Germany and scared the pants off the people that I was with. Uh, but in Southern California, uh, some years previously, this was just after my wife and I got on, uh, left the organization, so a private investigator hired by Scientology uh on a highway uh came alongside uh, as if to push us off the road like came alongside and then came into my lane and and then got in front of got in front of us and slammed on his brakes again to try and get us into some kind of a highway accident so these guys are they do play seriously Uh, They've uh, attempted to have me um, charged of false criminal charges. They framed me. And this was an operation which they themselves concocted and they asked for my help. And then they made a secret videotape and then they altered it. And um, they used it against me in court they 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 have tried to get people close to me sometimes successfully ever since i left the organization and to try to lure me into doing something for which i could be prosecuted or they have manufactured something to prosecute me
2: it's just incredible, and you've have, you have this uh, long on your website, just this long history of exhausting grinding litigation, all the way up to two thousand four. So it really never left you for twenty years. A kind of this kind of persecution you endured,
3: right? And a lot of it these days is internet connected. So there's a lot of black PR that goes on via the internet. There's obviously a ton of back that goes on. I have been black PR'd uh, to people who really should know better journalists, investigative journalists, who have ended up writing uh, Scientology's black PR positions on me. Uh, oh,
2: interesting. So they I'm, believe I'm, that the PR, wow, instead of looking at the facts. And is this going on till today, till 2019?
3: Yes. Recently, I discovered uh, through an FOIA request to the FBI that someone fingered me as the Unabomber.
2: Wow, that's incredible. So you were investigated by the FBI for that, then?
3: Yeah, I can't get all... I haven't been able to get all the files yet, but... um, that's yes, incredible. and the FBI has been no help. Uh, you probably should should know in the Scientology history that after opposing the Scientologists for decades the, and being themselves the target of Scientology dirty tricks and covert ops, the IRS and the Justice Department necessarily quit prosecuting Scientology and formed an alliance with them. This resulted then in the tax exemption which they got in 1993. There are some 43 pages of black propaganda on me in the submissions that the Scientologists made to the IRS to get their tax exemption. The IRS, because of the testimony from the people involved, required that the Scientologists lie in their submissions to the IRS. This is to justify the IRS's decision to grant tax exemption, which the IRS and the Justice Department knew was undeserved. The Scientologists have been involved in violations of public policy forever. And the the IRS had denied tax exemption on that basis, like, likewise through litigation through a number of cases. And that was really one of the
2: big objectives was to obtain that tax exemption and, and declare Scientology a religious organization, correct? And so when that happened, in that was a huge, what Scientologists would call a win, right? Once that exemption came through.
3: Right. In fact, they had a big celebration. The war is over. The war that they wow. say that they had uh, with the IRS. <clears throat> the problem with all of this is that the IRS and justice and other elements of the federal government knew that Scientology was abusing the human rights of of its members and its fair game targets, like myself.
2: Yeah, because you weren't alone. There's other people that have endured somewhat similar, uh, you know, private detectives and really nasty nasty behavior.
3: Right. Now, a a number of those people have been silenced and, and are afraid to speak out. But yes, I am certainly not the only one. I have my my own, you know, unique history. But there's many people, and I just happen to be someone who hasn't been completely silenced, despite the Scientologists' effort to silence me. They in California, they have been able to obtain an injunction, which prohibits me from seeing one word about my Scientology experiences or knowledge and permits the Scientologists and all of their agents, all of their lawyers, all, all of their directors, officers, and employees and volunteers to say whatever they want and I cannot respond. Or
1: 50,000... 000- Happy holidays don't just happen on their own. You make them happen with a little help from new appliances at the Home Depot. Because warm wishes won't roast that turkey. You'll want a new convection oven for that. An air fryer will help make the season light and delicious. And while you're at it, consider a new LG or Samsung fridge that's big enough to hold all kinds of Christmas cheer. Make the holidays yours with the season's best savings on top appliances at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. $1,000 per utterance.
3: When did that injunction and
1: come into place?
2: Nineteen
3: ninety-five.
2: And is it a permanent injunction? Yes. Interesting.
3: So, so this conversation with you would be fifty thousand dollars, and there are jail sentences awaiting me in California. Under, that, under what? For code. what
2: cause? What jail? What, why jail?
3: Uh, for for uh, contempt of court.
2: Uh, all right, and you, but you've been able to go to other countries. I saw an, uh, a lecture for you in Russia. It seems like a very well attended uh, lecture you made about Scientology. So you've still been able to uh, talk about your experiences in other form, venues and forums. Correct.
3: Right, uh, and in in my Estimation, the order against me cannot possibly be lawful. You cannot, in the United States, silence someone about what are clearly his religious beliefs, experiences, or knowledge. But
2: it's a First Amendment. It's a right to free speech, right? I mean, if you talk it's, factually, it's a it's a simple constitutional statement. I, I would think that that's a First Amendment,
3: right? And I believe that the only explanation for how the Scientologists were able to get this injunction and then a number of uh, contempt orders and then jail sentences and fines and were able to um, maintain it on appeal is because of the intercession Of the U.S. federal government. They spoke up, they have to get rid of the Armstrong case, they have to silence me. So
2: how do you think the federal government, why would they get involved at that time? If this goes back to what, 93, so that's what, Clinton's administration, Clinton's Department of Justice, why do you think that they specifically had this type of judgment?
3: Well, the Scientologists sued the IRS some 2,000 times.
2: Right, so just constant so pressure. Right?
3: Each, each case, of course, requires that the federal government assign a lawyer to it, eats up resources. The, the Scientologists are deluging them with FOIA requests. So, so there was that kind of pressure the Scientologists were running covert ops on the on IRS agents. So there's that kind of pressure. And then there was the decision that let's not oppose these people anymore. Let's form an alliance with them. And, you know, the, the U.S. and I suppose any government um, gets involved in relationships with unsavory players and they did the same with with the scientologists knowing that the scientologists were going to act against u.s citizens and victimize them and get away with it now because of their supposed religious status my position is that sure they're they're a religion but because of the the constant violations of of public policy, including criminal acts, crimes, that they're a religion, but they're an evil religion, and therefore they cannot be given all the benefits of tax exemption, etc, that are given to religions which do not violate public policy.
2: Yeah, that's a good point. Did you think that the tax exemption happened after an administrative change, so it happened after the Clintons came into office? Is that correct?
3: There, there may be a a decision that was made like that, way at the top of the of the U.S. government. It is it is altogether possible. Uh, it is possible that it was made because. Of blackmail information that the Scientologists had on on someone, um, and th- I mean
2: that—that's I mean for people who don't understand that potentially could be plausible because there, Scientology has been collecting information, but also got what was it the uh, was it the Snow White operation? There were all kinds of operations where Scientology was going in and getting FBI documents, right? Something like that.
3: FBI and IRS documents they they were well known by the IRS for as a criminal organization well known and they uh, according to Mark Rathbun and this was an interview done uh, by the Tampa Bay Times that the after Miscavige and Rathbun supposedly made contact with the director of the IRS, that the IRS got rid of all of the agents who had dealt with the Scientology issue wow. for decades and had been had been denying tax exemption. They got rid of them, they got rid of the knowledgeable people and they installed people who were directed essentially, to do what's necessary to grant tax exemption to these guys.
2: Wow, oh, that's incredible.
3: So, it's been it's been a
2: long... I mean, you started in Scientology at 22. It's literally a half a century of experience with this organization. And it, it sounds like it hasn't really fully ended for you. Is that correct?
3: Right, it, it has not. It it is very, it is very active on a number of fronts, a lot of the internet. Um, My my case certainly plays a part in the international relations between um, the U.S. and Germany and the U.S. and Russia and the U.S. and other countries and that's explicable
2: uh, because these german germany and russia i believe banned scientology and called it a, a pernicious group is that something like that is that correct can you explain that
3: right R- russia has has closed some of scientology's operations there the germans they've taken the position they keep them under official observation uh, by the security services, the so they keep them under official observation and there they are known as a threat to democracy
2: Fascinating.
3: In, the, in, in Russia really the issue comes down I believe, as, aside from uh, individual crimes or torts, it comes down to extremism And that's justified because of the suppressive person doctrine and because of the totalitarian nature of the organization. Right, and I mean, Hubbard
2: set himself up as kind of the source and that he was almost in a profit profit mode or something something where his goal was kind of Scientology all over the world, and maybe we can talk about his megalomania and what he really thought and how that's affected, you know, the organization.
3: Uh, sure, uh, I think <laughs> I think it's kind of ob- obvious uh, with the Scientologists' literature that they consider that they are mankind's only hope, right. A- and. Perhaps his most his most famous um, uh, policy letter, keeping Scientology working, uh, in which he states essentially that you know the the future of mankind and every man, woman, and person on it on the planet depends on what you do here and now in Scientology, and that in the in man's History has never come up with a, a workable system before, and so Scientology is here, and and there are, you know, bizarre statements like Scientology is here to rescue you, and these are pumped into Scientologists' minds, so they come away with the idea that we're the only we're the only hope, and therefore we must uh, destroy. Whatever threatens mankind's only hope, right, so you were kind
2: of like an elitism, so he preached a kind of to his members that you guys were special, that you were the insiders, you had the real knowledge, and the kind of outside world is something that needs to be transformed by Scientology. Would you agree with that
3: right the yeah. The outside world was what he called, and Scientologists call the wog world
2: wog right. And it's like a British term, right? What, or, yeah.
3: Right. It, it is equivalent. Uh, it's a slur which is equivalent uh, to nigger. But it, it just means in Scientology, although it's a slur, it means anyone who's not a Scientologist. So it, it doesn't have anything to do with color, but it is racial. In that the Scientologists are taught that they form a race of Homo novus. We wogs are Homo sapiens or Homo saps. Wow. So it, that in itself is a justification for their actions. They claim that they, they have superior ethics they have the only technology that works, that they have a technology that can, that the only technology that can improve intelligence, on average, a point per hour. Wow. Point per hour of
2: auditing. All right, so your IQ is going up. You're the new man, Homo Novus. I yeah. didn't know that he had the new man doctrine integrated into that, so that's really incredible.
3: That's yeah, a- and then within the Homo Novus, there, there is the elite which is the pseudo-military group, the Sea Org. So that has its own mystique, its own ethics system, and its its own uh, bizarre idea of its power and responsibility and its rights. So they say that the Sea Org is putting in ethics on the planet. And the way you put in ethics on the planet is to get rid of all the suppressive persons in the world. And suppressive persons are those evil guys who tell the truth about Hubbard Scientology or Scientologists. Wow.
2: So there's like an elite, like an SS or like a Jesuit order within Scientology that has the, that they're the true kind of new man with the new tech. Yeah, it's like a new new set of doctrines, like a new magic with a K or something like that, it seems like.
3: Yes, and then underlying this uh, group, this militaristic group with this superlative ethics, is actually Luciferianism. Right? Can you talk more about that, please? Yeah. So Hubbard, Hubbard wrote about himself as Lucifer or Lucifer's messenger. And Lucifer was the entity who supposedly was uh, bringing uh, light wisdom to mankind and in that sense is Antichrist and it's I could tell I understood from reading Hubbard's uh, personal writings documents he called or I, uh, we've called the Affirmations, and from uh, knowing of his relationship with uh, John W. Parsons, who was a, a Crowleyite, uh, you know...
2: Sure, Jack Parsons, uh, yes. Jack Pasadena. Parsons,
3: and, and from other writings of Hubbard, and then ultimately the revelation that this document, which had been circulating for a number of years called OT8 was indeed authentic and really does sound like Hubbard and he and the the document itself is extremely anti-christian and Hubbard was anti-christian and scientologists are anti-christian despite what they will say about being compatible with christianity or with other religions no, they are absolutely philosophically and psychically opposed to the promises of Christ, the identity of Christ. In fact, Hubbard famously said, uh, uh, the man on the cross, there was no Christ. Those are those are Hubbard's words. Right. And, there's audio of
2: that. Yeah, there's audio of him saying that. Yeah. And I was surprised reading through Scientology about how much anti-Christian material is in there and how many times he talked about it and his specific audio tape references to Crowley. So, and these are the early, the early kind of audio recordings you talked about, but from the early 50s, he was talking about it, but maybe I can, re, I mean, re, here he says, this is something you sent to me. Quote, no doubt you are familiar with the Revelation section of the Bible where various events are pre- predicted. Also mentioned is a brief period of time in which the arch, enemy of Christ referred to as the Antichrist will reign and his opinions will have sway. All this maintains for a very fantastic, entertaining reading, but there's truth in it. The Antichrist represents the forces of Lucifer, Lucifer being the mythical representation of the forces of the Enlightenment, the Galactic Confederacy. My mission could be said to fulfill the biblical promise represented by this brief Antichrist period. It's an incredible biblical statement. Amazing, yes, and, and then he said so. Christian ideas were actually an ongoing implant of the Markabians, and I reference that in my book, Children of the Beast. That you know, these are all ideas. I mean, in the intensity of the kind of how he gets into this myth and with, replaces a myth or the ideas of Christianity with his own myth is really incredible. Um, and did you so? Did you feel that anti Christian animus? While you were in Scientology in the seventies,
3: oh, oh, certainly. Interesting. Uh, it, it was simply, we had the superior way, and I have to pretend that you're okay, but I know you're just dramatizing an implant. Wow. So th- there's kind of a, a split in in the Scientology psyche that way so they have to fake friendship with people fake what they call ARC affinity reality communication but the intention is always there to control and that's the that in itself is the opposite of of Christianity
2: really amazing like how he came up with all this stuff and even i reference his son in his son's books about his dad saying he wasn't just an admirer of lucifer he was one with lucifer so he really uh absorbed this luciferian ideology into his outlook it's pretty incredible the uh you know and the the other thing is the ambition of scientology all the front groups and all these front you know you mentioned you reference these little pieces of you know, the ship being under a different name and Clearwater being under a different name. Scientology had like hundreds and hundreds of these front groups that tried to get involved in psychology and business and all this stuff, and it all led back to the centralized organization. Did you see that stuff while you were in it?
3: Oh, sure. There were essentially Scientology businesses uh, at that time, and they were the Guardian's office was uh, always creating fake groups. So they used uh, IRS whistleblowers. That was one of their their groups that they used uh, to solicit uh, usable dirt on IRS agents and on the agency itself. So. Um, you know and and the essential ones narconon and, and right. cchr that's their anti-psychiatry group and then there are all kinds of fake fake groups um, fake identities that they've used you know to get to get close to me oh, that's um, now it it is it there's just endless, fakery, endless lying going on among the Scientologists.
2: And what are your thoughts of what's happening today? Do you have any observations or anything? Like, I read Going Clear, the book. Did you have any thoughts about the right book or any of this, this kind of modern criticism or critique of Scientology? Um, <clears throat> I
3: I have to some degree a a problem with journalists who really omit some of the very serious societal issues in favor of celebrity like what you know tom tom cruise and his wives and and really omit the, the victims of Scientology and the very serious issues, the suppressive person doctrine. Um, Fair I, I'm glad that, that people are writing about it. Uh, I think that a new approach is needed. I think that my own case could be a springboard to a a confrontation with very serious issues. My position is that the Scientologists the basic crime in my case certainly, but in many other cases as well, and that's 18 U.S.C. 241, which is a conspiracy against rights and Uh, 18 U.S.C. 242, which is a deprivation of rights under color of law. And that is what Scientology is doing. Those are serious federal crimes. And they're, they're getting away with it because no one has dealt with them regarding those crimes. Now, the problem is, however... And that's that's the the complicity of the federal government and the federal, therefore, the federal courts. And Scientology has had decades to work on alliances among the, the attorneys and the judges. They they buy attorneys who are the most connected, who are the kingmakers, and. So going up against Scientology in the U.S. is very difficult. I believe that the defendants in such a case should be Scientology and the U.S. federal government. Gotcha. That's what I would do.
2: And we're um, we're we're at an hour and forty five minutes. Just an incredible, amazing interview, Jerry. I'm really just pleased and really grateful for you to take that time out. Is there anything I missed? Anything you would like to add? Uh, can you talk about your website as well, please?
3: Well, uh, my wife Caroline and I have five websites oh, okay. at least. One is the suppressive person. Dot org, and that deals with uh, confronting and exposing the suppressive person doctrine and uh, standing up on behalf of suppressive persons. There's a jerryarmstrong.org, there's a jerryarmstrong.ca, there's a jerryarmstrong op, the jerryarmstrong op, or operation. This is the operation that they've had going against me Multiple parts, multiple people involved, including U.S. government personnel. Ever since I left, so the beginning of 1982, so going into now uh, 38 years. Um, yeah, uh, I guess we can we can leave it there. There's so much more that we could talk about, and if you.
1: Uh, I'm have, always available if, just, for another just,
2: interview, a follow-up, anytime. You're always welcome. So, if there's stuff we missed or anything you'd like to detail in greater detail, that's not a. Pro- I don't have a problem with that at all.
3: Right, and and similarly, if you have any questions that are like very specific to clarify anything, we can do that. Uh, I, the, one note. of the
2: things in, the, in a future interview I'd like to talk about is the mind control techniques. How did Hubbard get these techniques? Was he affiliated with intelligence? You know, there's some of these questions, and I've had other recent interviews where it's clear these guys have got some kind of uh, blueprint for how to create these pers- this personality that's compliant and is not actively engaged in crit- super critical thinking or objectivity. So maybe that would be what I would love to follow up with you, and also, of course, occultism, which. Uh, you know how how Hoover got these ideas. What he integrated. His son said, Scientology was black magic drawn out over a long period of time. And I would love to hear your insights about that as well. So I would love to have another interview in a second. Not a problem.
3: Okay, it's it's a deal then.
2: Cool. Awesome. Well, let's just put this one up again. Jerry Armstrong. JerryArmstrong.org is the website I knew, but there's four other ones. Suppressive person. Uh, This is a first-hand interview with somebody who really was there, right there in the mix. So, Jerry Armstrong, thank you so much. I really appreciate it.
3: All right, you bet, William. Nice talking
2: to you. Likewise. Nice talking to you. We'll talk again soon. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.
0: You're the kind of person who makes a difference at work. So why not work on something that makes a difference? At Zooks, we're looking for collaborative, inquisitive people who can help us achieve our mission safer cleaner more enjoyable mobility for everyone come build the future at zooks find out more at zoox.com slash careers
1: happy holidays don't just happen on their own you make them happen with a little help from new appliances at the home depot because warm wishes won't roast that turkey You'll want a new convection oven for that. An air fryer will help make the season light and delicious. And while you're at it, consider a new LG or Samsung fridge that's big enough to hold all kinds of Christmas cheer. Make the holidays yours with the season's best savings on top appliances at the Home Depot. How doers get more done.